I am Pingxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. The November 2017 issue of Heart Rhythm has a featured article entitled Faster Ablation versus Electrophysiologically Guided Thoracoscopic Surgical Ablation in Long-Standing Persistent Atrial Fibrillation, the CASA AF study. The same article is also a CME article, an author interview conducted by Dr. Dan Maureen can be found on the www.highrhythmjournal.com website. That paper was co-authored by Hauda et al. from the Royal Brompton Hospital and Imperial College, London. Castor ablation outcomes for long-standing persistent AF remain suboptimal. Thoracoscopic surgical ablation provides an alternative approach in this difficult-to-treat cohort. The authors recruited 51 patients with de novo symptomatic long-standing persistent AF. Among them, 26 underwent EP-guided thoracoscopic surgical ablation. The remaining 25 underwent stepwise left atrial ablation. They found that meticulous EP-guided thoracoscopic surgical ablation as a first-line strategy can provide excellent single-procedure success rates as compared to castor ablation, but there is an increased upfront risk of non-fatal complications. The next article is entitled Simultaneous Recordings of Intrinsic Cardiac Nerve Activity and skin sympathetic nerve activity from human patients during the post-operative period. The paper was written by Mark Shen et al. from Indiana University. Intrinsic cardiac nerve activity, or ICNA, and skin nerve activity, or SKNA, are both associated with cardiac arrhythmias in canine models. The purpose of this present study was to test the hypothesis that intrinsic cardiac nerve activity and skin sympathetic nerve activity correlate with postoperative arrhythmias in humans. They studied 11 patients by recording electrical signals from two temporary pacing wires placed during open heart surgery on the left atrial epicardial fat pad. The authors found that both skin sympathetic nerve activity, and the burst intrinsic cardiac nerve activity were significantly associated with the onset of PACs and PVCs. Baseline average intrinsic cardiac nerve activity had a significant association with PAC burden. A patient with the greatest average intrinsic cardiac nerve activity developed postoperative atrial fibrillation. The authors concluded that the intrinsic cardiac nerve activity and the skin sympathetic nerve activity can be recorded from human patients in the post-operative period. The baseline magnitude of the intrinsic cardiac nerve activity correlates with PAC burden and development of post-operative atrial fibrillation. A limitation of the study is a small case number and that only one patient had post-operative AF during the study. The next paper is entitled 
de-identification of conduction gaps after pulmonary vein isolation using a new electroanatomic mapping system by Musada et al. Kansai Rosai Hospital in Amakasaki, Japan. The reconnection of the LAPV conduction after initial procedure of PV isolation is not rare and is one of the main causes of AF recurrence after PV isolation. The authors investigated the feasibility of a new ultra-high resolution mapping system using a 64-pole small basket tester for the identification of LAPV conduction gaps. They prospectively studied 31 consecutive patients undergoing a second ablation after a PV isolation procedure with LAPV reconnected conduction at any of the four PVs. A LAPV map was created using the mapping system and ablation was performed at the estimated gap location. They found that this new electroanatomic mapping system visualized all the LAPV gaps in patients undergoing a second AF ablation, thus documenting the feasibility of this mapping system in identifying gaps. An invitation of this study is that the authors do not have follow-up information to determine if this new approach significantly improves the ablation outcomes. The next article is entitled Atrial and Ventricular Activation Sequence After Ventricular Induction in Treatment Pacing During Fast Slow Atrial Ventricular Reentrant Tachycardia. New Insights into the Use of VAAV for the Differential Diagnosis of Supraventricular Tachycardia. This paper was co-authored by Kaneko et al. Gemma University Graduate School of Medicine, Maibashi, Gemma, Japan. The atrial and ventricular response observed immediately after cessation of ventricular induction and entrainment pacing is commonly analyzed to discriminate atrial tachycardia from other SVT during EP studies. However, the response in fast, slow AVNRT remains poorly investigated. The authors enrolled 28 patients. They found that the VAAV response was observed in 89% of patients with superior slow pathway versus 21% of patients with a typical slow pathway. They concluded that VAAV activation sequence immediately after ventricular induction in treatment pacing is observed in patients with fast, slow AVNRT, particularly in patients with superior slow pathway. A major mechanism is a double atrial response via simultaneous retrograde conduction through the fast and slow pathway. The importance of this study is the documentation that VAAV response is not necessarily indicative of atrial tachycardia.
The next paper is entitled Castor Ablation in Patients with Pleomorphic Idiopathic Premature Ventricular Complexes, co-authored by Sheldon et al., University of Michigan. PVCs often originate from multiple locations. The goals of this study were to assess characteristics of patients with pleomorphic idiopathic PVCs and to determine the impact of pleomorphic PVCs on outcomes. They studied 100 consecutive patients without structural heart diseases. They found that the presence of pleomorphic PVCs was independently associated with unsuccessful ablation. However, success successful elimination of the predominant PVC often results in successful ablation, even if not all PVCs are targeted. Although pleomorphic PVCs infrequently require repeat ablation procedures, most recurrences are due to re-emergence of the originally targeted predominant PVC morphology. They also found that pleomorphic PVCs more often had an epicardial origin than did monomorphic PVCs. These data are encouraging because the elimination of dominant PVCs often result in successful ablation. The next paper is entitled Safety of Castor Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation Using Fiber Optic Based Contact Force Sensing, co-authored by Mansour et al., Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston, Massachusetts. While the body of evidence showing the benefit of contact force sensing casters in improving AF ablation success rate is growing, Real-world safety data of this technology are limited. The, name, uh, the aim of the study was to report the complication rate in patients undergoing ablation using a specific CF sensing caster in a large worldwide database. Adverse events were reported in 178 of 41,000 patients, resulting in an adverse event rate of 0.427%. Adverse events included cardiac perforations, CVAs, atrial esophageal fistulas, audible steam pops, and death. The atrial esophageal fistula event rate peaked in late 2014 and early 2015 at 0.06% and decreased over time. The authors concluded that the major complication rate associated with this technology is low in the context of similar reports of conventional radiofrequency casters. These findings were different than that recently reported by Black Mayer and the co-authors in the September issue of the Horizon. In that study, the authors concluded the atrial esophageal fistula formation accounted for a much higher proportion of reported adverse events with 
contact force sensing casters compared with non-contact force sensing casters. The next paper is entitled Emergence of Atrial Ventricular Reentry Tachycardia after surgical or caster ablation for atrial fibrillation. Colon. Are we creating the arrhythmia substrate? Question mark. The paper is written by Romero and co-authors Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The purpose of this study was to determine whether ablation involving the septum or proximal CS during AF ablation may create a substrate favorable for AVNRT. The authors found nine patients with RF ablation, maze procedure, or both, or both uh, performed. None of the patients had a dual AV nodal physiology at baseline prior to ablation, but all had a typical AVNRT inducible that was abolished by slow pathway ablation. The authors concluded that the ablation involving the septum or proximal CS may create a substrate favorable for AVNRT. These findings are consistent with the theory that posterior septal left atrium and its connections to the CS are critical for some forms of AVNRT. These studies are hypothesis generating but does not necessarily confirm that ablation directly causes the new development of AVMRT. More studies will be necessary to document a direct causal relationship. The next article is entitled Bridge to Success, a better method of cryoablation for AV nodal reentrant tachycardia in children. The paper was written by Reddy and co-authors from Stanford. Cryoablation for AVNRT is associated with higher recurrence rates than RF ablation. The purpose of this study was to determine the impact of voltage mapping plus longer ablation lesions on midterm success of cryoablation for children with AVNRT. In all, 122 patients were included. The authors found that voltage gradient mapping and longer lesion time can decrease recurrence rates in pediatric patients with AVNRT. The next series of papers are experimental studies. The first one is entitled Atrial Ventricular Risk Differences in Rapid Cardiac Voltage-Gated Sodium Currents basis for atrial selective block by ranolazine. The paper was written by Caves and co-authors from University of Bristol, United Kingdom. Ranolazine is a prototypic atrial selective voltage-gated sodium channel blocker, but the mechanism underlying its atrial selective action remains unclear. The authors recorded wholesale voltage-gated sodium currents from rabbit isolated left atrial and right ventricular myocytes. They found that the sodium current conductance density 
was about 1.8-fold greater in atrial than in ventricular cells. Atrial sodium current was activated and inactivated at more negative voltage than ventricular sodium current. Ranolazine inhibited uh, sodium current in atrial and ventricular myocytes in a use-dependent manner consistent with preferential activation, uh, preferential activated inactivity state block. The authors conclude that a more negative voltage dependence of sodium current activation and inactivation, together with trapping of the drug in the inactivated channel, underlies the atrial selective action of ranolazine. The next article is bioelectronic block of parvertebral sympathetic nerves mitigates post-myocardial infarction ventricular arrhythmias. The paper was written by Chui and co-authors from UCLA. Autonomic fun dysfunction contributes to induction of BT. The purpose of the present study was to determine the efficacy of charge balanced direct current applied to the T1, T2 segment of paravertebral sympathetic chain on VT-induced ability post-MI. The authors used the POSI model for the study. They found that the charge balanced direct current block demonstrated a current-dependent and reversible block and without impacting basal cardiac function. It prolonged ventricular ERP and suppressed VT induction. The authors concluded that axonal block of the T1, T2 paravertebral chain reduced the VT in a chronic MI model. A limitation of the study is that electrical stimulation was used to induce VT in this study. The next article is entitled Genome-Wide Association Study of Heart Rate and Its Variability in Hispanic Latino Cohorts. The study was done by Kerr et al. from University of Washington, Seattle. The genetic epidemiology of heart rate variability in Hispanic Latinos has not been characterized. The study used three well-characterized Hispanic Latino cohorts with over 13,000 subjects. They found novel associations between SNPs and heart rate or heart rate variability despite modest sample sizes. The findings are the first of their kind in Hispanic Latinos and provide insight into the biological mechanisms underlying heart rate vari variation parameters such as SDNA, RMSSD, and heart rate. This discovery of genetic association for a well-studied phenotype, that is heart rate, argues for the importance of efforts to expand genetic association studies to populations of diverse ancestry. The next study is entitled Electrotaxis of Cardiac Progenitor Cells, Cardiac Fibroblasts, and Induced 
pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiac progenitor cells requires serum and is directed by PI3K pathways. The paper was co-authored by Bradrich and co-authors from UC Davis. The term electrotaxis describes the electrically guided cell movement, which has been clinically used to improve recovery in a number of tissues, but has not been investigated for treating myocardial damage. The purpose of this study was to test the electrotactic behaviors of several times, several types of cardiac cells using cardiac progenitor cells cardiac fibroblasts, and human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiac progenitor cells. They found that former two cells electrotax toward the anode of a direct current electric field, whereas human-induced pluripotent uh, stem cell electrotax toward the cathode that if electrotaxis is mediated through a PI3 kinase signaling. The authors conclude that the electrotactic behaviors of these therapeutic cardiac cells may be used to improve cell-based therapy for recovering function in damaged myocardium. Additional studies will be needed to test the latter hypothesis. The next paper is entitled Value of Cardiac MRI and Programmed Ventricular Stimulation in Patients with Frequent PVCs Undergoing RF Ablation. The paper was written by Yoko Kawa and co-authors from University of Michigan and Auburn. A total of 321 consecutive patients underwent PVC ablation with pre-procedural MRI was included. 14 patients with both MRI discovered structural heart diseases and inducible VT received an ICD after the procedure. The primary endpoint of VT, VF, or death was met in 15 patients after a median 20 months of the follow-up. The combination of structural heart disease by MRI and VT inducibility conferred independently an increased risk of adverse outcomes. The authors conclude that pre-ablation cardiac MRI and programmed stimulation can be useful for risk stratification in patients with frequent PVCs. Patients with inducible VT in the setting of structural heart diseases may benefit from ICD implantation after ablation, regardless of left ventricular ejection fraction. These findings if confirmed by future studies, may change the current practice of PVC ablation. The next paper is entitled Phenotypic Variability in Long QT3 Human-Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell-Derived Cardiomyocytes and Their Response to Antiarrhythmic Pharmacological Therapy, an in-silical approach. The paper was written by Passi et al. Tampere University of Technology, Tampere, Finland. The purpose of the study was to investigate in silico ionic mechanisms potentially explaining the phenotypic variability of human-induced pluripotent stem cell 
in long QT syndrome type 3 and their response to antiarrhythmic drugs. They used computer simulation to study late sodium current and action potentials. They found that in silico simulations can recapitulate variability in LQT3 phenotypes and the ability of mexilatine and ranolazine to reduce APD prolongation. The in silico models also identify potential ionic mechanisms of phenotypic variability in LQT3 human-induced pluripotent stem cell cardiomyocytes explaining APD prolongation in symptomatic versus asymptomatic long QT3. The next study is entitled the, the Role of Exercise in Atrial Fibrillation Prevention and Promotion, Finding Optimal Ranges for Health, by Idiot et al. from Adelaide and the Royal Adelaide Hospital, Adelaide, Australia. This review seeks to define the optimal dose and duration for prevention and treatment of AF. They review the evidence that supports a decline in AF risk for those who achieve a weekly physical activity dose slightly above the current recommended guidelines. Furthermore, they identify the reduced AF instance in those individuals who attain a cardiorespiratory fitness of 8 mets or more during maximal exercise testing. Finally, they review the evidence that shows an excess of AF among regular participants of endurance exercise. From current evidence, moderate physical activity at the recommended guidelines may be insufficient to reduce instant AF. However, at a weekly physical activity dose of greater than 1,000 minutes, for approximately 3.5 hours of moderate walking per week, there appears to be a reduction in the risk of AF by approximately 10%. The next article is hands-on article entitled How to Map and Ablate Popular Muscle Ventricular Arrhythmias by Enriquez et al. from Hospital University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. This article provided practical guidance of ablating popular muscle VTs. The next article is a creative concept attempts to prevent tongue swallowing may well be the main obstacle for successful bystander resuscitation of athletes with cardiac arrest. The paper was written by Visking et al. from Tel Aviv University, Tel Aviv, Israel. The authors searched the internet and found 29 videos showing athletes collapsing with cardiac arrest. Rather than doing chest compression, opening the airway was the first approach. In 65% of the cases, the first intervention was an attempt to prevent tongue swallowing with various techniques. These maneuvers delayed the resuscitation efforts and contributed to the sudden deaths of these athletes. These findings suggest that better public education is needed to improve the survival of athletes 
who suffered from cardiac arrest during sporting events. In addition to the above articles, the journal also published an unknown of the month article, a Josephson and Wellens ECG lesson, and four EP news. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm Dr. Peng Shen Chen for Heart Rhythm.